In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 10, verses 1 through 28. This chapter recounts a stunning series of events in the Israelites' conquest of Canaan. The chapter begins with the news that the city of Gibeon, a Canaanite city, has formed an alliance with Israel by tricking Joshua into making a covenant of peace. When the neighboring Amorite kings learn of this alliance, they unite to attack Gibeon. In response, Joshua leads his forces on a grueling overnight march to rescue the city. What follows is an extraordinary battle marked by a miraculous event as God intervenes by causing the sun and the moon to stand still. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Thursday, September 28th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Much gracious appreciation to our sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, joining me to explore this chapter, chapter 10, at least the first half, verses 1 through 28, is the Reverend Ross Shaver. He's the pastor of Zion Lutheran Church and School in Nampa, Idaho. Good morning, Pastor Shaver, and welcome back to the program. Good morning, and thank you for having me back. It's great to be here. Well, I'm excited. This is an interesting chapter. I can't wait to hear um, what we have to learn from you about it and see how we can maybe even apply this um, miraculous event to our lives today. It's going to be exciting. Um, Before we begin, though, would you just start our time off uh, in prayer, and then we'll hop right in? Yes, yes. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, as you continue to fight for us in our behalf to conquer the enemies of sin death, and the devil. We give you thanks for that victory that Christ has won for us on the cross and that we receive through faith. So grant us a strengthening of faith as we consider your servant Joshua and the people of Israel in the struggle that they undergo and the victory that you deliver for them through that faith in your promised Messiah, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, here we are, chapter 10. Uh, why don't you catch the folks up a little bit? What's happened in the events immediately preceding this? Sure. So in, um, in chapter 9, uh, basically that whole chapter there is, um, uh, is about that Gibeonite city that deceives Israel and kind of tricks the leaders there into creating a, um, a peace treaty basically with them. And they had seen the the victory that Joshua had led uh, the people of God uh, through in their defeat over Jericho and then over the city of Ai. And now um, they're a little scared. They're nervous because these people have been coming in and they're conquering these Canaanite lands. And so rather than um, face them in battle, they try a different tactic. And they um, so, again, they, they basically tricked them into this sort of um, peace treaty so that Israel doesn't come and fight against them and destroy them. Now, uh, when we get into chapter 10 as well, um, there ends up being some other benefits, as we see, to this kind of peace treaty. It's not just um, that Israel won't attack Uh, the Gibeonites, but now they're also, um, it's necessary for them to defend them against, um, against other attacks from the people in the area. Well, let's, let's do that though. Let's head right in. I'm just going to read the first, oh, I don't know, five verses, uh, just to get a taste of it and we'll start. Here we go. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai, and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, 
to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. All right, we'll pause right there at the end of five. So, yeah, just getting started, we see there's this, um, well, they're, they're kind of going the southern campaign of conquest of, of Canaan, and, you know, they've had victories at Jericho. And then after they learned their lesson, they had victories at Ai. Uh, right. and, and now, of course, uh, here they are, and there's an incident in which they are bound because of that treaty to defend Gibeon. So uh, take us, what are they up against here? I mean, this seems pretty, it seems pretty daunting. If you didn't know the Lord was with you, this would be even more daunting. Right. And it, it, it still was, you know, even at this time. And um, we've already heard in the book of Joshua how, how God had told Joshua to encourage the people to be strong and courageous um, and not to fear. And, you know, really, that's one of the major themes that we see throughout this chapter, as well as uh, really just the conquest of the land in general, is that it's the Lord who gives victory to his people. And when they try to do things themselves or um, or kind of cut God out of the uh, the decision and how they go about doing things, that's when they get themselves into trouble. That's what happened with uh, with Ai, and now um, in a, in a sense, how they were tricked by the Gibeonites in this kind of way. So um, this part is uh, you know a little a little different in the sense that now the um, you know, the Israelites are not the ones going on the offensive here in this passage. Um, but you have um, Adonai Zedek, this king of Jerusalem, who, um, who has heard what Joshua has done. And they've heard about these victories at, um, at Ai and how it was uh, devoted to destruction. And um, the same with Jericho and now the peace treaty with Gibeon. And so he's afraid. He's afraid because of this uh, uh, this pact. So already the Israelites were a, a formidable force that started conquering, and now um, now you have Gibeon, which is a um, uh, a powerful city in and of its own right, full of warriors. So now all of a sudden the Israelites, uh, in in essence, they have these um, allies that are native to the land and much stronger. Um, because of that as well. So it's, it's a frightening prospect for, for Adonai Zedek. Um, an interesting note here too, um, kind of beside the point, but still I think interesting. This is the first usage of the name Jerusalem in Scripture. Hmm. So the, ci yeah, the city itself has been uh, referenced before, usually called Salem, um, are also right. called Jebus, but now you have uh, you have the full name here that we know it by Jerusalem. So now is uh, that is that because um, whoever's writing Joshua is referring it to the name that people would have known, as sometimes is the case, or was it known as that during the time of this battle? Or do you uh, know? <laughs> I'm not really sure. I'm yeah, not but you really know what sure because I mean, sometimes like, it's um, yeah. yeah sometimes they're a little anachronistic and it's just uh, I don't know just curious sure. but yeah that is an interesting interesting note I didn't realize that sure but this is also where you know where this area now and where Jerusalem is is basically conquered by the Israelites as well so you know there might be a tie into that aspect sure. as well that that now this part becomes uh, becomes part of a conquered territory. Of the now, I of don't God. know, so I'm just speculating too, but I, I suspect it might be one of those anachronistic things where, you know, they're calling it by the name that it receives perhaps later because of this, as you said, this is the incident where they where they sort of take it over or that sort of, but they right. do. Um, right. Now, in 10.3, we have these sort of five kings, uh, this yes. five king coalition. Now, that's a little different, I believe, than the kings back in chapter nine. Uh, chapter yes. nine, the first couple of verses says, 
As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, heard of this, etc., they gathered to fight Joshua. But here, um, it seems like they're a little, they're different parts. They're southwest of Jerusalem, right? And um, they're from different parts. So these are different kings. And even that alone, I guess, shows you that, man, there's just relentless um, uh, opposition but at the same time, from the perspective of all these kings, here it's it's an invasion force. It's an incursion. They don't believe that the land's been given to them. So it's it's sort of an interesting to try to look at it from all sides. It is, you know, and and back in chapter nine again, Gibeon associates with three other cities. So this peace treaty covers Gibeon and three other cities, and now you have Israel. So that's so that's basically five right there and now the king of of jerusalem gathers an alliance of five as well to fight up uh to fight against them and yeah so these are these are different cities and um all of these cities are are south of jerusalem and um and this is you know they're actually very close gibeon is only about eight miles northwest of jerusalem and israel's camping um, about uh, maybe another 20 miles or so down. So they're fairly close um, to the area, and this is why, or part of why it makes um, Adonizetic so nervous is that these enemies are right right on their northern footsteps, you know, and, and so they create this alliance, and, and they go not to strike Israel, but they, they go to strike Gibeon. And um, so kind of the weakest link in essence, and the one that's also sure. closest. So they don't, they don't go straight for Joshua and the Israelites, but they head up towards, um, now towards Gibeon, um, maybe uh, partly because it was uh, smaller and probably weaker, but also that's the closest target. So it makes a, a natural target for them to go after in this kind of way. Well, why don't we add some more verses to the conversation, starting with yeah. verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And Yahweh said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And Yahweh threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Ezekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the descent of Beth Horon, Yahweh threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekah, and they died. And there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. (laughs) Pausing there at the end of 11. So as they go in, obviously God is assuring him of the victory to come. But one thing that I guess stands out to me is that their treaty with Gibeon was in many ways, yes, they were tricked, but... It's, I think it's fascinating how they, they honored that treaty, and really even God honored that treaty, despite the fact that the Gibeonites were in the promised land of those who should have been destroyed, not made treaties with. But we see here that God stands up for them anyway. I mean, what is that? I mean, is that significant right. in any way? How can we understand that? Yeah, it's it's very significant. You know, some uh, some commentators have, have taken this to to refer to uh, the Gibeonites being incorporated into the people of God and falling under the covenant that God had promised to them. And so, uh, you know, whether they were full, full members um, in the same way that the Israelites were, I mean, there's no reference of, of things like their circumcision or anything like that yet at this point. But, you know, regardless, what you said is just right. You know, there is... Um, this, it's more than just a peace treaty. It is, it's a relationship that has now been formed and both the people of God are obligated 
to honor that, but also God himself does that, even, as you said, even though it, it wasn't established in the best of ways. And in that way, it's, um, it's actually extremely significant that Israel comes to the defense of those who are basically the newest in the community and the weakest. And this is, you know, uh, kind of translating this into some of our modern days in a more personal aspect and effect of this too. You know, the devil, the devil often attacks the Christ, uh, new, new Christians, you know, those who are new to the faith, those newly brought in to the community of God's people. And the devil's, or um, and the world certainly does this as well, trying to kind of push and pull us back, you know, people back out of this. And the broader people of God, those that are are more established, more uh, mature, and firm in their faith, are called upon to to rush to the defense when any members of the body of Christ are under attack. And that's that's part of what it means to be um, to be part of the people of God. Is that we we share one another's burdens, we support, mm-hmm. encourage, uplift, and defend one another from error from from outside attack, from sin, and and the like. So this is a wonderful yeah, example I mean, of it really how God's is. people I, that's treat. A, that's a great connection. I mean, it should be noted, of course, that you know the more mature in the faith, that it's not that you get attacked less by the devil, of course, but right. but you know you you learn and you mature and you grow to rely on Christ more and more. And but yeah, the people who just come to the faith, they're so vulnerable. And, um, and and if we take this, the Gibeonites is sort of being brought into the people of Israel, then yeah, that makes a, that makes perfect sense, you know. And, and we see that our responsibility, and I've said this a couple of times, even just covering Joshua, you know, we are our brother's keeper. We are to look out for mm-hmm. one another, especially those who are new to the faith, because there are so many opportunities to be how can I say it, disenfranchised by the world. You know, as you start to learn some of the things that challenge your faith, you know, mature Christians, it's not that they're smarter, it's just that they've been through it all. They've already had those doubts. They've already had those struggles. They've already been attacked in that way and have been um, uh, brought out of it by the Lord. Well, the new believer, they don't they don't see that. They, they, they right. haven't experienced those victories yet. And here we have Gibeon reaching out, it says, and, I, and I, I think it's always interesting how when we read, it's very formal in the Bible. Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come to us quickly and save us and help us. But I, I really instead sense a, almost a panic. You know, not, right. you know, relax not your hand from your servants, but more of a, hey, 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 come help quick. We, we need you. You know, don't, don't, <laughs> don't delay. Right. We're, we're, we're in trouble. And right. they're you in know, trouble. Uh, I was just going to say, they're in trouble because of their association with the Israelites. Otherwise, they'd have been left alone. All right, sorry, go ahead, Brad. Right, right, right. No, and that's right. And I think, I think that's exactly what they're doing. You know, they're crying out in this panic. And, you know, there's, there's another connection here, of, too, of course. So they're, they're crying out, and in, in, in that verse you just read, in verse 6, come, uh, come up to us quickly and save us. Well, in Hebrew, we know what that word is. It's a very common word that we like to sing about a week before Easter. It's mm-hmm. Hosanna. Right, and so they're crying out, Hosanna! Um, and who are they calling out to? Or they're calling out to Joshua, or um, you know, in Hebrew, Yeshua. So uh, you have this connection, same name, uh, Hebrew name as Jesus as well. So you know, in this sense, this whole event and this rescue that comes by the hand of Joshua prefigures the greater Joshua, who we cry out to in times of our need. And how uh, the Lord comes and uh, and Jesus comes and saves us and delivers us and and He uses His people, right, His body, um, to do that. He works in and through them to again to uh, to support and encourage to help one another um, in these ways and and to proclaim the victory that Christ has won for us, so that we might receive that by faith. So boy, that'll preach. Kind of this, that'll preach. Yeah, that's amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I've been uh, loving. Yeah, I've been loving the. Well, so I was just say I've been loving the typological connections between Yeshua here and, of course, Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, right. Jesus, and uh, and that's another one that kind of escaped me in the moment. But you're absolutely right. Hosanna, Yeshua! Wow, that's beautiful. I'm. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Yeah. So, um, I guess you know, continuing on here, 
And we see, we see Joshua and the people responding in this way. And they go up from Gilgal. Um, they go up, he brings his, his army with him, the mighty men of valor. And the Lord, just like he had done before, uh, he encourages Joshua again um, not to fear. And, you know, this is, this is really a key section again throughout the whole thing that we've already noted. Um, but he says, uh, Yahweh says in verse 8, right, for I have given them into your hands, right? The Lord, the Lord is the one who brings and delivers the victory to his people. And that um, his people still have a role to play in that as God works through them. But that's where the victory rests. And then as Joshua and, and his men um, have that faith in the promise of, of God, that's where that victory then comes and is delivered to them in this way. So he sneaks up. Um, they come up. They march all night from Gilgal, again, about a 20-mile or so uh, march. They march all night, probably. And as, as they get there, um, God almost makes it easy, in a sense, <laughs> for them. Um, verse 10, the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them. So, you know, the Lord, he's, he's delivering that victory again, and even, even managing the enemies, their, their fear, their ability to, to rebel and to fight against God and his will and his plan for his people. And he brings about that victory, and that's really solidified in this section um, down in verse 11, whereas they, they run away and they, they flee from, from Israel that has been coming down. Um, it's a wonderful miracle here. The Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them, right? And they died, and so much, so many died, right? More died by the Lord's <laughs> action in this than by Israel. Um, and Joshua killing them with the sword. So, so again, I mean, it, it highlights one God's interaction, but also the His victory, and um, that it's the Lord who's really leading the charge against the enemies of God's people. Well, that Hebrew word hamam we've heard before, the one that's here translated the Lord your Yahweh threw them into a panic. Right? I I can't help but think of the uh, Egyptian forces. Right? Uh, yeah. The, yeah, Exodus 14, 24, in the morning, watch Yahweh in the pillar of fire and cloud look down upon the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptians' forces into a panic. It often is accompanied not only when God helps the Israelites in battle, but especially when he uses like miraculous phenomenon or meteorological phenomenon here, giant large hailstones. Like if you first read the Yahweh threw down large stones from heaven, I guess on the first reading, it's like, these giant boulders falling from heaven, and that certainly would have been miraculous. But it turns out that these are probably hailstones. So it's a, a natural phenomenon that the Lord is using to help them win the day. And, of course, yeah. natural phenomenons being controlled by God uh, are going to come up later in this same passage. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is, you know, this should also—the last time that, that Yahweh used hailstones was uh, the seventh plague in Egypt, too, and as you— you know, That's you right. kind of mentioned, so you have a similar, a similar act by God in delivering his people from, um, from their enemies and the attacks. And it's, uh, as you said, you know, God uses even, uh, even his creation and nature itself to, uh, to operate and to interact with his people in this way. Well, let's keep the narrative going. I'm going to read through verse 15. At that time, Joshua spoke to Yahweh in the day when Yahweh gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, quote, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when Yahweh heeded the voice of a man, for Yahweh fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. A pretty miraculous, the sun stood still. Um, we might be talking about this uh, even after the break, but let's begin now. You know, 
this is a miraculous event, um, but it also, I think, challenges people's faith uh, because it's in contrast to uh, our expectations of how the universe works. Right. Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, this is a very familiar passage, a, a kind of a Sunday school story, in essence, um, that it comes to that. And and this is where um, oftentimes people, you know, when they read uh, Joshua chapter 10, this is the part that really kind of jumps out that there's a lot of discussion about, you know, what what exactly happened here and how did this how did this work? And um, and so there's there's historically there's been some heated debate and discussion about um, about what exactly happens here. And we could we'll look at this in a little more detail. But uh, you know the main thing to remember is that that God is the creator, and that He is not bound by the laws of of physics or the laws of His creation that He built into this. And we see this every time, really. I mean, we just read another miracle about how God used creation to um, to assist and to bring victory to His people in this in this fight. And He's doing He's doing a similar thing here today. And uh, this is, you know, this is really no no different than what we see um, and what we see clearly in Jesus, and as He um, displays his divine authority over creation itself. So when we think in, um, for instance, like in the New Testament, um, where Jesus, um, Jesus controls the wind and the waves when he's in the boat with the disciples, and, and they're amazed at this, even though, even, right, even the wind and the waves obey him because he is the creator of those things, and he is the Lord of creation. And it's the same it's the same thing here, that as the Lord of creation, he, uh, he's able to, to use those things, and he is not bound to the, um, to the law uh, and the order of the creation that he has established and at his time and according to his will. He uses that, and he uses it to deliver his people from the curse of of living in the fallen world and their own sinfulness. Hmm. Well, I tell you what, we're going to keep on talking about this and a lot more when we come back. But folks, don't go anywhere. We have some messages now. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Ross Shaver. He's the pastor of Zion Lutheran Church and School in Nampa, Idaho. Folks, thanks for being with us this morning, taking the time to be in God's Word. If you have any questions or comments, you can still email me at pastorboo at gmail.com or find me on Facebook. Say hello. Let me know how you're listening, right? Do you tune in over the air? Maybe you're in the St. Louis area or you listen as a podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. You know, you can also listen online at kfuo.org. You can use the KFUO radio app on your phone. You can even listen to KFUO through the LCMS app. There's so many ways. There's no excuse not to be in God's Word. Well, back to the Bible. Uh, Pastor Shaver, before the break, we were just getting into the, the fact that the sun and the moon stood still. Now, I know that, I, I shouldn't say I know, I'm Pretty sure I remember that Francis Pieper, a famous 19th century Lutheran theologian, his works, his dogmatics are still used in the seminaries today. Um, but one of the, let's say, 
flaws of his works is that he used passages like this to kind of suggest or maybe even declare that the earth was the center of the universe. Um, right. You know, you know, I understand why someone in the 19th century might think that, and I certainly don't take any objection to uh, objection rather to his misunderstanding. But it's it's important for people to know, though, that when we say the sun stood still um, and the moon stopped, you know, scientifically speaking, it's hard for us to get our mind around that. But nothing is beyond God's um, God's power and His ability right. to control the creation in ways that don't harm the creation um we see even through jesus's ability to you know he he can do things that only god can do uh but still i think it's worth talking a little bit just for a minute or so about how the bible while it's not a scientific textbook it's not going to speak in ways that are against um the scientific explanations of things you know if we misunderstand it it's our misunderstanding so right just just your opinion, right? This is not authoritative. Yeah, sure. Uh, how do you think this happened? You know, do you think that the, earth, I mean, did the earth stop? That would be catastrophic. Was it just, I, I don't know. How do, do you have any idea? Have you ever thought deeply about maybe how God did this? Um, yeah. So, um, I mean, have I thought deeply about it? I mean, I've thought about it, of course. This is a, I guess, a common question when this passage arises. And, um, you know, I'm certainly not a, a scientist in that kind of way, but so I don't, I mean, personally, I don't, I don't get overly concerned with the how, how did God do this? Um, and, and we can delve into some of that as, as Christians, you know, and at the end of the day, though, this is a part of, of scripture that we, uh, we either take it by faith or we reject this part of scripture as as not an uh, an infallible inspired section, which I think would be a very wrong and dangerous move to do. But you know, God and the language here certainly, um, as you said, I remember that as well. That Peter does this, and if I remember right, he bases that off of of Luther's um, uh, explanation and discussion on Joshua. Um, although I could be mistaken, but there is, um, you know, people have been uh, uh, debating and wondering how has this worked, you know, and how did God do this? Did, as you said, you know, did he stop the sun? Um, I mean, from the language that is here, certainly from from that human perspective of looking up, we still speak this way, right? The sun rises and sets, even though we know now uh, that physically it's not the sun that's moving around the earth, but the earth that's rotating and moving around the sun. But we still carry that same language um, and speak about it in that same way. So from certainly from Joshua's perspective and the people of God, it, it um, looks as if, I mean, the sun stops and the moon stops right, right there. And to extend the day so that the work of that, uh, the victory could continue in that kind of fashion. No, again, well, you, you talk know, about what? the. Well, you say you talk about the language uh, carrying over, and that's just another example of how often our experience um, doesn't necessarily match reality, but we still explain and understand and see the world through our experience. So we have sunrises and sunsets and that sort of thing. We don't talk about sure. how. Oh, look the 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 sun is coming to into view this morning as the Earth, you know, rotates around. I mean, that would just be cumbersome. We just talk about it the way we experience it. So we sure. continue to talk about things in, let's say, unscientific ways, not technically scientific, but it doesn't make them untrue. And I I agree with you. Correct. I think that's an example of what's going on here. Yeah, yeah. So you know what? How God does that? Um, you know. Uh, in in my opinion, uh, I don't. He he doesn't explain it, and so we can speculate all we want. But at the end of the day, that's just speculation. And, uh, that's true. We but don't, it's fun. It's we, fun to yeah, speculate. It's sometimes. fun speculation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, it is. You yeah, know, we to, don't have to base to our faith that. on it. Yeah, but what? it's. I mean, regardless. I mean, the fact of the matter still still stands, right? That God is working on behalf of His people, and somehow in His in his omnipotence, right, his all his all powerful glory and working for his people, um, 
intervenes in the natural working of an order of the creation that he has established. And he does this, again, um, for the purpose of, of saving, for the purpose of, of rescuing his people and delivering victory to them in this way. So, um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I have no problem saying the sun, you know, certainly from our perspective, the sun and the moon stood still where they were right. and that God was able to, to intervene and, and make that work, uh, make that happen so that, you know, however that happened, that everything else didn't just fall apart, you know, and you didn't see mass hysteria or, you know, the rest of creation not working because the earth stopped moving around or whatever, but that God made that work um, in whatever details that it was. And, you know, another uh, kind of connection pointing to the future, a little bit of the opposite thing happens, you know, in the, in the greater miracle, right, of Jesus when he is hanging upon the cross. And then you have Rather than the sun shining all day long, you have three hours of darkness in the middle of the day where darkness falls upon the land. And again, you know, God inter intervening in his creation for that same purpose to bring about the salvation of his people and the victory that Christ wins for us on the cross. Well, we certainly want to keep moving, but I do have one thing that perhaps folks at home are asking about, and that is the book of Jashar, right? Is this Jashar, not written yeah. in, the, in the scroll of Jashar? Uh, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> I've yeah, never read the we, scroll of Jashar, have you? Yeah, I have not, no. So apparently it's, um, I mean, it seems to be a, the way it's written here, that it would be a, um, a collection, a book that uh, would be familiar to the, to the readers, of Joshua's day, but um, apparently it has been lost to history. So we just, we don't know uh, what that is about or where that is. Um, it just hasn't survived, um, survived to our time. Yeah, so. I mean, some some scholars speculate that parts of it could perhaps be found in Second uh, Samuel and maybe some parts of First Kings. But yeah, we just right. we don't know. We don't know. We just don't know. Well, uh, yeah. you ready to keep going? Uh, uh, sure. Well, one more one more quick note. Sure. I think that that um, I think is is significant about this as well. You know, when when God stops the sun and the moon, you know, this is at the uh, upon the prayer of of Joshua. You know, so Joshua is the one that's asking. Um, he's speaking to the Lord about this, and that's that's quite a, a spectacular thing that the Lord um, performs this act in in response to the prayer of of Joshua himself, and uh, because the Lord is fighting and working for His people, and that's a pretty I think a pretty significant thing. We know that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And we don't see anything else like this specifically happening, but you know we do hear Jesus speaking in uh, in Matthew chapter eighteen about the power of faith and prayer in this way, where where he mentions um, um, I'm sorry, uh, excuse me, it's Matthew seventeen, where he says uh, if you have this faith like a uh, mustard seed, right, like a grain of the mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will happen. So that, you know, God, God hears and he answers prayers according to his purpose and his will, um, but with that, with that ultimate goal in mind to deliver, to deliver his people. So that's a, I think that's a pretty significant thing and also should give us comfort that God may not cause the sun to stand still if we ask for it here and now, but he does hear our prayers and he does answer them according to his good and gracious will. And there's nothing to, uh, that, you know, we could be asking for the sun and the moon to stand still to solve our problem, and God goes, you know, I have a, a less, you know, earth-shattering way <laughs> to, right. to solve that issue. So God sometimes offers our, right. answers our prayers, but just in ways that we don't expect. But right. yeah, but you're right, though. It, God can, God, uh, God's ability to come to the rescue of his people cannot be understated. Well, let's right. continue on, starting with verse 16. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Mechadah. 
And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for Yahweh your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. All right, let's stop there. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Boy, the Hebrew is colorful, but yeah. So yes, no one yes. even spoke badly about the people of Israel after this, and, and I wouldn't want to either. Right. No, absolutely not. I mean, it, it astonishes the people and silences their, yeah, silences even their criticism because of this. So, so, so yeah, and yet, or... Go ahead. Well, go. I guess just going ahead, you know, and and looking at this part, you know, after after this victory that God has delivered for His people, the um, uh, these five kings now they they hide, right? They go and they hide in this cave at Makeda, and they um, they're where they hide um, ends up also becoming their tomb, right? So uh, we'll we'll hear about that a little more later on, but they you know, a stone is rolled in front of the mouth of this so they couldn't escape. And then they, uh, the people continued to go after the, uh, the rest of the enemies until, um, until they're wiped out, as it said, right? And, um, and only a remnant of them remain kind of hidden away in their, uh, in their fortified cities, right? Where they, they're not easily getting, um, gotten to and attacked. So, well, let's hear about um, it now, starting with verse 22. We'll sure. just add the verses. Here we go. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so. And they brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with them, Come, come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near, and they put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus Yahweh will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. And he devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did, and he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Uh, that's actually the end of our text for today. So uh, God, of course, is keeping his promises. The people are faithful, and we have this very vivid object lesson from Joshua for his, for his men, his generals, or perhaps just his fighting men, but you know they're all standing on the, the necks of the kings around them, and he says, look at this. This is what God's going to do to your enemies. Uh, I think for our 21st century sensibilities, we we go, ooh, that's that's something, um, right? But at the same time, this is God's work in the Old Testament. You know, it's not for us to judge. Yeah, it is, and this, I mean, this is this is part of the struggle, especially with uh, with the Book of Joshua and Judges, is that you do have these uh, issues of of warfare and divine warfare and what that looks like. And that's a, that's a huge topic in and of itself is, um, is that sort of thing. But as you said, you know, this is, uh, this is God's action and God's um, direction for his people at this time and place. And it, um, it is, it is hard for us in our modern times to, um, well, to imagine this happening, but also, uh, uh, understanding that this is God's people 
who are who are acting in this way you know who are doing this sort of thing because it seems pretty brutal for us yeah um, it, it really does but i think we also are always judging even history well frankly we even judge i guess so-called non-divine history secular history through our own lenses we do and misunderstand so much about what that's like and we think, oh, these poor innocent people, they are not innocent, first of all. There's plenty of, of, uh, of records of their attacking the people of Israel. But also, you know, God is God. And, we, and I think we've domesticated God so much that we don't recognize that even when he does things that um, reveal, I guess really reveal our sin and what we really deserve, that's why we get upset, because we see that and we go, well— you know, if it weren't for the salvation that I have, that could happen to me. Or if we right. aren't saved, those who aren't saved might look at that and go, that's not fair. And I think a lot of that's out of fear, because if there's a God who can destroy these people um, because he's given their land to his own people, then what's going to happen to them? I think even people who don't believe in God, that's the reason why I think they get convicted in these stories, part of it anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And it does. I mean, it really shows just how serious uh, God treats sin and rebellion against him and um, just how just how serious this fallen world is. And and that is something that especially as Christians that we do need to take to heart is that these things um, these things are serious, both spiritually, but also sometimes um, in an earthly manner as well. And, and we, can't, we can't treat these things lightly. And, you know, this is really, this isn't at all in contrast with, with the kinds of things that Jesus talks about uh, either in the New Testament. I mean, when he says, you know, if, you're, if your eye causes you to sin, well, pluck it out, right? And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off because it's better to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, with with one eye or with one hand, than to be um, than to be in hell, that be brought down by that. And so, you see the seriousness of this kind of thing. And you know, when even the people back then struggle with some of this. And as you know, as you continue on through Joshua, I think you know our hearers are gonna we're gonna hear this again um, later on in the book. Right, the people of God sometimes think well, boy, God is just being too severe, right? This is too much. And so we're not going to, we're not going to follow God's command and in totally wiping this out. And, you know, it's interesting language. It's already showed up in Joshua, you know, devoting things to destruction to the Lord and, you know, treating that almost in a similar way as a sacrifice, you know, a pleasing sacrifice or, um, in the sense of like holiness as well, that these things are unholy, and uh, God's, they cannot exist in God's people because, you know, well, as later on, right, Jesus says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And God's people get in trouble. This is why they struggle with these Canaanites and the Philistines and other peoples in this area for centuries after this because they think that God's judgment over sin is too harsh and they want to be nicer in that that comes back. Um, to bite them in the behind, basically, because they don't uh, they don't believe that God actually knows what is best, and that God's uh, actions and His work is for the good of His people, and that includes God's um, holy justice over over sin. And thanks be to God that we you know we have the sacrifice for our sin. So that, you know, we see these things and we ought to run to Jesus all the more saying, uh, saying thank you for, for taking that punishment that I deserve because I deserve to have the heel of, of the almighty God's boot on my neck because of my sin. And yet Jesus takes that punishment upon himself so that I might be part of his people and that I might be forgiven and live um, with him in holiness and righteousness. As with the king of Ai and apparently Jericho, we see here the kings are hung on tree, right? And every uh, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And so taking your analogy even further, not only do we deserve to have the 
the the heel of the boot of the almighty upon our necks but we deserve to hang from those trees and yet of right. course it points us forward to jesus who hung on the tree in our place right yeah absolutely so well, it's, uh, any, anything I, else from this text, let's make sure we can get everything out of it as we approach the end of the program. <laughs> uh, but there's, it, it's, it's one of those narratives. So a lot of it is just sort of the narrative, but isn't sure. there so much here though, that we see God acting up for his people. It's beautiful. There really is. There really is. And you know, things that I, I mean, I keep getting drawn back to over and over um, in the book of Joshua, but this chapter is a great example of this is shows up again in, in, Verse 25, where Joshua says to the people, again, do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. So there's this constant uh, reaffirmation, reminder, encouragement to be strong and courageous, to, to rely on the Lord, regardless of what the enemies of, of God are, are trying to do. And the enemies of God's people are also the enemies of God. And to see again that God fights for his people and as we're engaged in a, uh, in a, a warfare of our own, a spiritual warfare, both um, one being fought in, the co- in our own consciences, in our own sinfulness, but also from the world that, and the devil that do not want us to follow God's will, that to be constantly uh, reaffirmed of God's victory and God's action for us and through us. Um, it's a wonderful, a wonderful piece of encouragement that, that we do have victory because of Christ. And, um, and that's, I mean, as, as we've kind of talked about, we see Christ and imagery of, of Christ throughout this section and what he does for us. And it's a, a wonderful blessing to be able to see Christ even in uh, the Old Testament passages such as this. Amen to that. And I think that's actually a good place for us to go ahead and bring our discussion to a close, but not without first thanking my guest this morning, the Reverend Ross Shaver. He's the pastor of Zion Lutheran Church and School in Nampa, Idaho. Pastor, thanks so much for being back on the show. I can't wait to have you back on. Well, it's been my pleasure, and I look forward to to speaking with you again sometime soon. Excellent. Well, folks, tomorrow we're going to keep on going. We're going to finish up this chapter. And the second half, it's going to highlight a series of victories over the various cities and kings, including Makeda and Libna and Lachish and Gezer and Eglon and Hebron. Joshua and the Israelite army are going to display remarkable military prowess and determination, but of course, Their victories are being secured by God. And it culminates in the capture of Debir and the defeat of its king, which marks the end of Joshua's southern campaign. We're going to talk about that and a lot more tomorrow, so be sure to join us. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.